A word on Major League Baseball and the National Basketball Association restarting their seasons. Actually, five words. Are you people fucking insane? I know we all want to return to normalcy. I know we all want to flick on the TV and see LeBron and James Harden battling at the top of the key, or Mike Trout trying to take Clayton Kershaw deep. But this, this is just wrong. I spoke with one major league coach recently, and he was scared. With good reason. COVID doesn't discriminate. It goes from you to you to you to you. And inside a clubhouse, or on a basketball court, or on a plane, it'll spread from athlete to athlete like wildfire. And while most of these men are in tip-top shape, they have parents, they have grandparents, they have spouses. So seriously, MLB, NBA, I know you're greedy and desperate, but just let this one go. Take the seasons off. We fans will survive. I promise. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Tom Verducci, the outstanding Sports Illustrated senior writer. This is episode number 163. Let's sling some yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. All right, well, Tom, I mean, uh, I just said I haven't, I probably haven't talked to you face to face. I left SI in 2003, so maybe 17 years or something like that. It's been a, uh, a, a very long time. And so you have this, this story, and it warmed my heart. And that may sound dumb. It truly did because it was so vintage Sports Illustrated. It felt exactly like the magazine I grew up reading and the magazine I loved. It's called The Hub, Love, War, Influenza, and the World Series. I texted Steve Canella, uh, my former colleague, one, the, one of the editors of SI now, and I said, how long is this story? And he said, well, Tom sent it in at 30, 30,000 words. I'm just going to I'm just going to unload it and ask you a big one. How did this thing happen? Oh, man. Well, first of all, um, I, I admire your uh, detective skills because I regard it as a true SI, kind of in that DNA of SI. And that was really what I set out to do and wanted to do. I didn't set out to write 30,000 words, though. Um, <laughs> Listen, as the pandemic first hit, I had a tough time deciding, like I couldn't write about the regular nuts and bolts of baseball writing, right? This thing was so big and so important that everything else seemed so trivial um, that I wanted to write about something that had importance within the context of the pandemic. So I started thinking about, well, we've had a pandemic before. It was 102 years ago. What was the connection to baseball? And I remember hearing a story about an umpire who had died of the Spanish flu back in 1918. His name was Silk O'Laughlin. And he was very popular at the time. I guess maybe he was the Joe West of the day, somewhat controversial, but everybody knew who he was. And I started looking at his story and, you know, it was marginally interesting. It would have made a nice little column, uh, but I didn't think there was a lot of meat on the bone there. In the course of trying to find if there was anything there, I came across this guy, Eddie Martin, a beat writer for the Boston Globe, who was covering the Red Sox in 1918 during World War I, of course, and the pandemic. And just the more I started diving into it and researching the story, I realized this was a lot more than just, say, a column and even more than just the story. Um, so, you know, with people pretty much quarantined, I figured this is the time if you're going to write something of a certain length, you can get away with it a little bit, especially if it's episodic. So I thought if I can make people care enough about the character and characters in the story, 
They want to keep reading to see where the story is going, especially when the arc of the pandemic really kind of, in my mind anyway, it, um, it's not exactly what we're facing now, but there's a lot of similarities. So it brings the story into present day context as well. So I started out wanting to write something that had to do with the pandemic, and I really wanted to write something that was really original, which getting to your point again about SI, is what SI historically has been known for, right? You read a story that maybe you didn't even think you were interested in, but there was enough to that story to make you have some interest in it, and hopefully it was done well enough that it would drag you in. So I think a lot of times you come to SI for stories that you didn't even know you liked, but you can find it there. And I wanted SI to still to be the kind of place where you find a story that you weren't going to see anywhere else. By the way, I got to break this down though. So you, because I have a lot of, I have a lot of aspiring writers who listen to this podcast and people sort of want to know how to do it. You said you came across the story of Edward Martin, this writer, Edward F. Martin. This writer. Like, what does that even mean? How do you come across his story? <laughs> Well, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of a student of history. I, I like digging into everybody who's come before us, and we always think everything that happens is brand new, but generally other people have gone through it. Um, places, I'm into places, the history of places. Um, so I guess it was a research project is the way it started out. And um, coming across Eddie Martin just means that in, in researching the umpire, I came across other people who had died of the Spanish flu, um, not just in baseball, but, you know, any – quote unquote celebrities or known people. And, you know, in researching, I came up with Eddie Martin. And as I started reading over the stories in the Boston Globe, man, that was like a treasure trove. I mean, to come across a guy who is a writer and writing prolifically and writing really well, I mean, that's like somebody left behind a diary of what happened. I mean, you just don't luck out. I wouldn't have gotten that material with the umpire. Um, you know, he's really, there's not much historical context there, footprints left behind, if you will. So that was a goldmine to me to know that I could go back in the Boston Globe and kind of retrace the steps of this particular person. And then from there, everything branches out. And that's, you know, you get into the, his father, his wife, his, uh, well, Red Sox in particular were a fascinating team. And Babe Ruth, man, I just imagine, I mean, I, I'm always fascinated by Babe Ruth stories. And I just kind of pictured myself covering the Red Sox while Babe Ruth was playing in 1918. Oh my goodness, how much fun would that have been? I, I wonder if we're similar in this regard. Like I will, I'll start reading, just as an example, I'll read some article about the rock band Kiss. And there'll be some tiny little mention about a time they played a show in Anaheim. This is just an example. Mm -hmm. And I'll read about an arena I never heard of. And then I have to go on newspapers.com and read all about the arena. And then that'll take me to some fan who got hit by a truck at a Leonard Skinner show back there five years. And then I'm all about like, do you, is that how you kind of work? You like tick, 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 tick. And, and next thing you know, you're up at three in the morning reading about a Leonard Skinner show. And absolutely. Absolutely. Very similar. I mean, I love pulling on these threads and the farther that thread leads, man, I, I don't care about going down rabbit holes or, you know, you'll hit, hit some dead ends that don't go anywhere, but I love doing that. Here's an example for you. Um, two years ago, we moved, in here in New Jersey, bought a new house. I wanted to know everything about the house, when it was built, who owned the house, the street, who else lived on the street. I wound up writing, it was a hundred pages, but it wasn't like, you know, it was bevel spaced, hundred pages, a history of my house. Cause I, I wanted to know that. Um, so I love finding out. It's almost like the games that you watch, the historical games, the biggest games you can remember. Everybody knows about the Kirk Gibson home run 
uh, the David Freeze home run, Roy Halladay's no-hitter, the big moments we all know. I love finding out, though, those little grains of sand that tell you how things came to be in that position and the little things that led to the big things. So I like doing that research. So yes, during the pandemic, when back in early spring, the weather was terrible, it wasn't going anywhere, nobody was going anywhere. It was really cool for me to have that kind of a project. Each day I look forward to finding, what else can I find out about this story? So are you a, um, like to me, newspapers.com has been a life changer for me. Yeah, it's awesome. Is that your main? Newspapers.com is great. Um, Ancestry.com is a great source. You get on that and you can find, you know, not just your own family, but other people, lots of things out there. Um, and anything, I mean, just search engines, just amazing things. You know, it's, it's funny when the internet first came along, I thought it was going to be like having your own library. I thought it was going to be this incredible resource vehicle. It turned out to be more of an entertainment vehicle for most people. But it still really is an incredible resource vehicle. It's like having your own research department, your own library. Um, I don't think enough people see it as that. I mean, you can also obviously be entertained for hours and hours and hours. But for me, there's some entertainment involved in research. Wait, this is my favorite thing Canella wrote. I wrote to him. I said, this Verducci story is next level. And this is his response. It's insane how quickly he researched and wrote it too. He asked me if I liked the idea the first week of April. And he filed on May 18th. Like, what are you, what are you doing with your time? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, I usually don't do things halfway. So once I get into it, um, I was really into it. And yeah, you know, it's funny. At first, he asked me very early on in the process. Uh, I probably wasn't even done with researching yet, but like, how long do you think this is going to be? And I said, well, I think this is going to be pretty long. It's probably going to be about, you know, five to 7,000 words. <laughs> So even I wasn't prepared on where this thing was going, but you know what, Jeff, the more I got into it, I realized that um, it worked actually better at being episodic and, and having these chapters, if you will, um, and working it to length because I did want it to be sort of a historical narrative um, and, and tell the story with an arc to it and develop the characters enough. I didn't want to feel like um, I was in a hurry to meet a, you know, a, a a number a word length that I had to hit and um, I just kind of let it go actually and again I mean I think having newspapers.com and especially you know a guy who was a writer himself who, who left so much rich material I had a lot to work with so I was I was totally into it every day you know I'd get up and, and look forward to it I mean one of the things about this pandemic I've tried to do and I've told people it's I think it's a great thing to do is um, get into routines you know, whatever your routine is, stick to a routine. And this was certainly part of my routine. I'm fascinated by this. I've never asked you these things. Like you, you get up at what time? What time do you start writing? And when are you, are you writing at three in the morning? Are you writing at, you know, what, what is your, what's your, uh, for this kind of story, what are you doing? Well, actually, um, my hours are a little more so-called normal. Usually baseball hours, as you know, Jeff, can tend to be on the later side. And I do a lot of writing generally at night, like late at night, um, because there are fewer distractions. But in this case, during the pandemic, I'd get into a routine where the first thing I'd wake up 5.30, 6 o'clock, I'd do the New York Times crossword puzzle. Um, I'd always go out for either a, a run or a bike ride, come back, do some stretching and exercises, kind of just get my clear, my head clear for the day. So then I'd sit down and either start researching, if I had enough already, start writing. And just throughout the day, uh, I'm not saying I just sat chained to the desk all day long, but... Um, there was a lot of periods where, yeah, I mean, when you have, you know this, Jeff, when you have really good material, there's sometimes where you just can't wait to write it. 
And that happened a lot with this where, you know, the days would go by and the hours would go by, but I was so into the story that it didn't feel like it was drudgery or, or work. Do you ever hate what you write? Are you, are you one of these guys who's like, oh, everything I write just sucks or you do you always feel good when you walk away? Um, I, I will say this. I, I, I really enjoy the writing process. Uh, I enjoy having written. Uh, I don't really enjoy so much after that. Like after I hit the send button, in my mind, I'm done with it. I don't go back and read things that I wrote. I don't go back and see shows I did on television. Um, to me, it's the process of doing it is what it's all about. So I always feel like I try to do the best that I can and going back over it. I mean, listen, it happens. There are times I'll come across something that I wrote or I have to you know, refer to something I wrote years ago and I'll have to look it up and see it. But as a matter of general practice, I, I don't go back and reread the things that I write. So I guess that's a long way of saying that I don't kind of beat myself up over it because it's, it's more about the in the present tense in the moment. Wait, I'm frustrated by something. So you're saying, so I've written books, you've written books. You're, yeah. It's day 70 of some book you're writing and you're sludging down and it's chapter 19. And you've been working on this freaking thing day after day after day. You're still enjoying the process. You're still waking up. You take your stretch, take your run, you have your breakfast, you sit down. You're still happy to be writing. You're not losing your mind. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I really like the process of it. Um, I mean, I'm lucky where a lot of times I get to write about, like in this case, something that is of interest to me. That was my idea. And I always tell people, uh, young writers especially, you're passionate about the subject man it's going to turn out to be a lot better than if somebody told you what to write and you had to work up the passion for it so i'm lucky where most of the times i'm writing about something that i want to write about that was certainly the case here and um yeah again i i like i don't want to say i'm in a hurry to write but if i've got if i know i've got really good material and i, and I knew i can do something with it i kind of like weaving everything together i look forward to it what was really fascinating about this is for people who didn't, haven't read it yet, you, you write it as letters from him to you. Each section starts with Dear Thomas and as letters from him to you. How hard was it or what was the challenge in sort of taking his voice? Like it actually doesn't sound like Tom Verducci writing Tom Verducci a letter. It sounds like a guy in 1918 writing you a letter. Right. How much did you put into the very idea of channeling the way he wrote and bringing it into you know, these letters? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, for people who haven't read it, that device I got from Eddie Martin himself, this Boston Globe beat writer, because in spring training, he would be in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and file some of his stories in the form of a letter to somebody back home. So I was actually borrowing a device that he used. I was already borrowing his voice, so I liked the idea of borrowing a device that he used. So, um, you know, as far as sticking to his voice, I think because I read so much of what he wrote and I felt like I really knew him pretty well. Um, it was hard in the beginning, but as it, the more I got into it, the more I kind of just assumed that voice. Like one little thing back then, nobody wrote in contractions. There are basically zero contractions in the entire Boston Globe in 1918. Uh -huh. Nowadays, as you know, we're in a hurry for everything. Right. And why would you not say, you know, can't rather than cannot? So, you know, I had to catch myself early on taking out some contractions because it just comes second nature to us today. But back then they didn't. So it wasn't so much that it was more formal. Um, it's just the style of the day. So I think because he had written so much and I read basically everything he wrote over a three-year period, 
um, it was kind of easy for me to just kind of assimilate that style of writing. And do you like, all right, like there's a part here, I literally have it written up in front of me, um, marked up. You wrote, as him, something caught my eye as I finished writing for the morning edition of The Globe. As a cold, dull dusk fell over Fenway, like the lowering of a heavy theater curtain, I watched some of the veteran scribes slowly pack their typewriters and cases. So when you're doing something like this, like you don't know for a fact, I mean, maybe he did. I mean, you know the weather. I'm sure you looked, the weather was cold and there was a cold dust. Like how much are you, do you allow yourself to play with the idea that he probably looked up and saw the weather and it was a, you know, it was a dusk and I noticed that. Like, I guess how much can you toy with the idea of who he was and what he was thinking? Yeah, that's, that's always a question when you go through something like this that, you know, as an author, you really have to, kind of pick a position. And for me, I wanted to be authentic as possible. I said in the very beginning, the way the story starts, everything in here is true. And I really mean that literally. I didn't want to take a lot or any literary license to kind of just fill in blanks. If there were blanks, I left them blank. So yes, in that case, I'd look up what the weather was like that day. Um, And I read his story where he did mention these other older writers packing up their their boxes and typewriter cases uh, at the end of the day. So all that stuff that I I really didn't want to take literary license um, in terms of certainly the facts of the case. And that includes things like weather. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times we're looking up the weather, whether it had anything to do with the events or not. um, It allows people, it kind of places people in the moment of that particular day. Um, But yeah, I think I, I, I love looking up those little details. So I didn't want to just rely on, imagination or again filling in blanks i just want to say i mean i'm not i'm not kidding i love this story like i love this story like it made me happy to read this story sad and happy. well i gotta ask you jeff because to me there's two versions of this story there's the one that's online and there's one that's in the magazine now, the I magazine is not going to get thirty thousand words in i read the magazine should i read should i go back and read so, it on, I think you'd have to ask steve how it, the final number came out but i think the on the in magazine version of the story came out to about 17,000 words. So, I so online there's 30,000 words. So I got to read this again. So as you're telling me. I, I think you have to, because listen, if somebody, if somebody directed a film, I don't think they make a film with extraneous material. Right. And That's so fair. the abridged version of anything to me, I'm sorry, as anybody who's in the creative process, you included things because you thought they were germane and necessary to the final product. In this case, in the magazine, this was already one of the longest stories the magazine has ever written. I realized it wasn't all getting in there. But for me, the story, the real full unabridged story is the one that's online. Now, for some people, it may be harder just to kind of physically get through and refreshing pages and, and, and skimming that way. But uh, yes, there's a lot more. Well, it's not a lot more, but there is more to it in terms of you know, characters, certainly the arc of the story is all there in the magazine. Um, but yeah, I, I thought the original unabridged version is the way to go. So maybe you can read that and compare them. Do you know the joke about the two Sports Illustrated editors in the desert? I don't. There are two Sports Illustrated editors walking in the desert. They're walking for days and days and they're really thirsty. One day they finally get to a beautiful lake, clear water, and they run up to the lake and the one guy's about to drink it. The other editor says, wait a second. And he pees into the lake and he says, now it's good. <laughs> that joke must have been made by a writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you ended, though, with, a, with you wrote, um, it was him in his final letter. And you said, um, 
My lungs felt leaden. Air could hardly pass in and out of them. I was scared. Then, as I grew too weak to fight, I understood this killer was in full control of whether I would live or die. There was nothing I could do. I closed my eyes. My last thought was, was of Delia. That's his wife. In my mind's eye, I saw her in all of her eternally youthful beauty. I knew that we would be together again. At 4.53 p.m., I took my last breath. Delia and I died only about 30 hours apart. And then most sincerely, Edward F. Martin. And I wonder, um, when you go through an experience like this and you write a story like this and you sort of put everything you have into it, do you feel the sadness of someone dying 102 years ago? And does it get you in any way? Or is it kind of just a story and there's a distance? No, I do. And thanks. And you didn't even give a spoiler alert there, Jeff, by the way. Uh, uh, No, I I think especially being kind of so ingrained in this story and this character for a while, uh, I did feel a kindred spirit with Eddie Martin. Uh, I saw a lot of similarities, you know, baseball writer, part of the BBWAA, loves baseball, obviously. Um, You know, he's Irish American. I'm half Irish. Um, you know, happily married and proud of it. And just, just a lot, of, I could tell this guy loved what he was doing and was in a great place in his life. Everything was coming together for him while the war literally was raging and the pandemic was about to explode in his own backyard. So yeah, I mean, I definitely, I, I guess felt for him is the right way to say it. Um, but don't forget, Jeff, I, the, during the whole time I'm writing this, I'm trying to think like him, write like him, affect the character. So, yes, I mean, even while writing the story of his own passing, uh, yeah, that did affect me a little bit because I was just so into the totality of the character. So, obviously, Sports Illustrated, especially print version, it doesn't have the reach that he once had. Obviously, it's a mm-hmm. monthly magazine now. The decline is sort of painful to watch in many ways. When you write an article for Sports Illustrated, do you care if 500,000 people are reading it or 3 million people are reading it or 50,000 people are reading it? Does that impact you in any way? It really doesn't. I mean, I do care about the magazine. As you mentioned, it doesn't have the stature that it did before. And I was lucky enough to be there, you know, in some of its best days. So I know the kind of impact that it had, even culturally, not just in the world of journalism, SI, Sports Illustrated. So I'm aware of that. Um, but in the writing process, no, I'll never forget the first story that I wrote when I was an intern at Newsday out of college. And I sat down, I was in the office, and the editor came by, the sports editor, Dick Sandler, walked behind me and he said, just remember, you're not writing for the Daily Collegian anymore. And I thought it was weird. Like, it wasn't like I was nervous, because when I'm sitting there, it's the same keyboard. I'm just writing the story the best that I can. The size of the audience I hate to say this, but it's completely irrelevant to me. Um, I don't write for the echo of what comes back after having been written. I write for the process of writing. So to me, it's it's kind of a, a purity of purpose when it comes to writing. I don't worry about how it's received, how many people are going to read it, uh, what promotion is behind it, how it's going to be positioned in the magazine. All those things are kind of out of my control. What I can control, I'm totally into and the rest of the stuff is ancillary. You're uh, you're the rare person in media nowadays, a big name guy in media, who isn't on Twitter. I envy you times a thousand, times a million. Why are you not? That's because of all you people on Twitter who tell me they envy me for not being on. Is that true? I mean, seriously, I mean, I'm half joking, but 
I don't know anybody who says, like Twitter, oh, you gotta be on it, it's so much fun, it's great, you'll love it. They say the exact opposite. Yeah. You know, there's just not enough for me controls on it. First of all, not nearly as many people are on Twitter actively as you think. Right. And people in journalism are obsessed with it. So it's a little Petri dish, it's a mini culture and people, and this is where I talk about the purity of purpose of writing, people will write to the echo effect. What's gonna come back? How many people are going to retweet this? So that begins to drive their process. It's the, it's the caboose driving the engine. Uh, so I avoid that. It doesn't it literally doesn't exist to me, that kind of influence. And also it's just to me, there's a lot, as you know, a lot of negativity out there. And I, like most people, I think, I don't like negativity. And why introduce that if you don't have to? I'm not saying Twitter is totally worthless, but I think if there were more controls, it would be a much better place. Like, I love Joe Madden's idea. His idea is that there should be a good Twitter and a bad Twitter. Yeah. If you want to be mean and nasty, go on your own Twitter. But don't bring that to what Twitter should be. Don't pollute the water for everybody who wants to swim in the clean water. We just only have one Twitter right now, so you don't have that choice. Do you feel like um, the prevalence of social media, whether you're on it or not, has impacted your job covering baseball and actually specifically relating with players, dealing with players, talking with players? Yeah, I think so. And I think you saw that a lot during the uh, negotiations between players and owners this year that um, not that Twitter wasn't around before or social media, but they seem to be more active this generation and it was easy for them to get their word out there or their take on, you know, each ebb and flow of negotiations that didn't really exist before. So they could bypass traditional media or, or just get the voice out there before that it, where it was, was not heard before. So it definitely has more of an impact. Uh, this generate each generation is essentially more comfortable and sees it as firsthand nature rather than secondhand or a learned process. So yeah, again, it's nothing that, you know, I disregard. I'm just not active in it myself, but I realize that, you know, for a lot of people, uh, it's a way to express themselves. Just a quick example from the other day that Ian Desmond decided not to play, and he wrote a very eloquent, beautiful essay on Instagram explaining why. And, I mean, I thought that was very powerful. And, you know, if he did this, say, during the, if he played during the strike in 94, 95, or in 1981, we would have made assumptions about why he wasn't playing. And instead, he brought really a multifaceted and, again, very eloquent essay explaining why so that I thought that was really powerful and he took advantage of of that platform before we continue with two writers slinging yang a quick word from our sponsor hey this is Jeff Perlman I'm here with my wife Catherine who's just having the best time during the pandemic I hate you and I'm leaving wait what if I've learned anything from this experience it's that you're a miserable human being with a sort of I don't know dead raccoon like body odor I can change you never shower and you keep singing that fine young cannibal song over and over and over. I'm a new man. Do you know there's a bead of snot on the innard of your left nostril? It's just stuck there, always. I'll be better. And that stash of penthouses in the garage, do you think I don't see them? It's over. Wait, wait. 503 Sports sponsors this podcast. And if you go to 503-sports.com, you can pick out any throwback jersey or hat or t-shirt you want. I swear. And if I type in that this podcast sent me there, they give me 10% off. It's an amazing deal. <sighs> Okay, I'll stay, but you have to take down the Minuto posters. I, I told my wife last night, I was like, yeah, I'm having Verducci on tomorrow. And I was telling her a story. Someone recently said to me, they were, I was talking about Sports Illustrated, and they were like, 
man, Verducci must have been the best mentor to be a baseball writer with. And I was like, he doesn't really operate that way. This was not an insult. I was like, it was amazing to watch him work. And I learned more, like watching you work at Clubhouse was educational times a thousand. I really mean that. Watching you work at Clubhouse. I learned from watching you, I'm not kidding, to wait groups out. I learned to go to the uh, middle relief pitcher and the bullpen catcher. And every time I write a book and I call some fifth round draft pick who never made the team but was in camp, I think of watching you work Clubhouse. I really mean that. Like that was a huge lesson for me. And I wonder, number one, am I misreading that approach at all? And where did you sort of get that from? Yeah, no, I don't think so. It's very perceptive of you to learn that way because, you know, I, it's keeping your eyes open and your ears open. And, you know, I, I give you credit for that, not because you're following me, but, you know, you knew what you didn't know and you wanted to learn. And that's a powerful driving force. So I think it's more of my nature and getting back to the whole social media thing. I think it's, it's great if you're an extrovert. I'm not really an extrovert. I'm more of an introvert, much more of an introvert. So, um, you know, I don't need the spotlight. You know, I don't need people to follow me or I don't need to follow, certainly don't need to follow others. So um, I guess the way I work is probably more about my personality that I don't need to be upfront. But it's also because I always felt, especially once I got to SI, Jeff, that I always felt there's a premium on content at SI that essentially, and this is going back a ways, we had the time and generally the resources to produce something of quality, right? In the newspaper business, you're always compromising. And generally the compromise is time. Sometimes it's resources, but most of the time, mostly all the time, it's time. We have a little more time at the magazine. We have a little more resources. So to me, that sets the bar higher, but there's no reason that you don't turn in something that really is first quality. So to do that, I put a premium on original content. You know, I don't want to write what everybody else writes. Um, I need to find out, like you're saying, if it's the uh, middle relief pitcher or a bullpen catcher, he may have some information that the masses, so to speak, haven't decided they needed to talk to or didn't have the time to talk to. So I was always looking for things that were a little bit unusual that informed the larger story. Um, so I think it's, it put an emphasis in my world, as I did, on coming up with things that were really original that you couldn't see anywhere else, whether that was an angle, whether it was a quote, whether it was a note, anything that really set it apart. It's like I tell, I tell a lot of journalism students, if you want to follow other people and kind of mimic them and, you know, what job should I take? What book should I read? What you're essentially doing is creating a level of average, right? If you want to do what everybody else is doing, that's the definition of average. And that's not how you get ahead. And that's for me personally, not where I want to be. I don't want to be in the middle, writing what everybody else is writing, doing the things that everybody else is doing. So striving to be original and new is a real big motivator. And I, and I thank SI for really making that a priority. I would say there's always going to be a better writer. Like there's always a better yeah, writer. A better writer sure. everybody. You can always, you can be the guy who works the hardest. You know? That's right. And I think you're a good example of that because a lot of people got into SI, you know, wanting to be a writer at the magazine or a fact checker, reporter, what have you. It's, as you know, unglamorous work. It's hard work, a lot harder than a lot of people think. You don't get a lot of credit for the work that you do. So everybody wants that, the big byline and, and wants to get there. But I do agree, and I think you're proof of this, Jeff, that just working hard can set you apart from the field. You'd love to think that your writing is just so great that that alone is going to carry you forward. 
but it's really the work that you put in. I, like I tell people, if, if there's a writer that you really enjoy reading, I guarantee you that writer is a great reporter because you're only as good as your material, unless you're just you're writing books and you're writing fiction. Um, but even then, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of research involved in that. But great writers, you can't skip the step of being a great reporter before you get to the level of being a great writer. And people don't understand, like, the joy. I'm sure you get this. Like, you find out that the guy wasn't just drinking a soda. He was drinking a Diet Coke. Like, little tiny nuggets yeah. of information just take you to a different level. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's the ultimate test, if you will, if you get into like the postseason environment, especially the World Series. Uh, I mean, you literally have hundreds of people who are covering the same event and essentially writing the same story. I mean, what can you do to bring something to that story? People have already seen the game. They've probably already read some other pieces. If you're writing and you know only what everybody else knows, people don't care about that. You better bring something that's new and to do that, you better really dig and be a good reporter. Wait, so here's my question. I used to hate, with a passion, covering the World Series. I hated everything about it. I hated the million people there. I hated the, you know, getting whopped in the head by someone's camera, getting, yes. putting the auxiliary press, everything. Mm -hmm. Did do you enjoy the sort of competitive charge of having 100 peers around you, or would you rather be at Cubs Brewers in July? <laughs> I mean, both have advantages. For me, that covering the World Series is pretty cool because, yeah, it's 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 challenging. But um, I always felt like you're kind of writing the first draft of history. You're you're writing games that people will be talking about ten, twenty, thirty years from now. You know, even if they're not truly historic games to that particular, the fans of that particular franchise, they'll never forget it. So, uh, yeah, I, I saw the games as a chance to write the first draft of history and wanting to really get it right on that first pass to it. So I agree with you about how many people are out there and just kind of a hassle and the lack of freedom of movement and access and all those things that make it more challenging. Um, that part, yeah, it's not so great. I'd rather have the Cubs Brewers in August. But, um, yeah, I mean, the big events are still pretty cool. My, to me, big event moment that I hate, and this happens to everyone, every reporter at some point, you, you're a print reporter and you're talking to whoever, some third baseman about his mom just dying of cancer. And the TV person comes in and says, can you talk about, can you talk about the third inning single? Are you allowed to punch the person? Do you feel like you are allowed to physically punch the person with the microphone? Is that allowed? Yeah, I always thought we should carry like Nerf guns around with us. I'm not a fan of punching people out, but... Just to, you know, shoot a Nerf dart at them so they get the message that that is so lame. First of all, the can you talk about moment, I mean, that should be an automatic fine. As you know, it happens all the time in the press conference room when people shout questions out to people at the podium. Everybody needs a soundbite. It doesn't matter if it's good, bad, indifferent. They need a soundbite. So they'll say, can you talk about? That's not really a question, folks. And you should have your press pass pulled immediately upon saying that. And yes, the protocols in the clubhouse uh, seem to get more abused in the postseason than any other time. Um, I guess because there's more people there, but the lack of respect if you are doing an interview and you know you have somebody's attention on a one-on-one -on -one basis and somebody just comes in and, and blows it up, uh, that, that is really, that's not cool. Yeah. Did you, um, did you ever think, I have in front of me, I have from Tom Verducci's days covering the David Woodley Miami Dolphins. Yeah, yeah. For, uh, yeah. 
Florida today. So that you that was the Super Bowl season, Miami Dolphins, Washington Redskins, and you were a rookie. Yeah, I had an internship at Newsday. That was my first full time job. Um, it was a great full time job because I worked my butt off, man. It was a Gannett newspaper. That's what you do. You don't get paid anything, but you work really hard. I mean, I was, this was in the early days of pagination. So I was designing and laying out pages, copy editing, covering spring training. The Astros were in Cocoa at the time, uh, Dodgers in Vero Beach, and then covering the Dolphins during the season. So, would you travel with the Dolphins? Uh, well, there's a strike season. So half the season was gone. But yeah, we made some trips. We, a couple of times, I mostly I drove down to Miami for the games. A couple of times, we actually took a small plane. But yeah, we traveled with the team. I remember I was at that game in New England where uh, the Patriots kicked a field goal and they swept the snow away. From, they had a, a snowplow come out and clear it. That was so cool because, and this is a great example about you're talking about finding out details, right? Everybody saw that a snowplow went out and cleared the, the field so the kicker would have good footing to kick the game-winning field goal. And late in the NFL game, if people don't know, I don't know if they still do it, you can go down on the field till you're closer to the locker room to talk to people. So the last minute or two of the game, you're on the field. So after this guy cleared the field, I was able to go over, and I wasn't the only one, but I was able to go over and talk to the guy who drove the snowplow. Wow. It turns out he was on a work release program from prison. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, but you only find out if you go over there and ask the guy, hey, what's your name? You know, did anybody tell you to go out there? It was so cool. So that's a long way of saying that, yeah, we traveled the team, and I just got to throw this in that Don Shula was terrific, man. Again, I'm just a snot-nosed kid right out of journalism school. I don't know anything about, you know, journalism, really, and I'm learning, every, learning everything on the fly. And here I am with, like, the greatest coach in NFL history, and he treated me like I was a 20-year veteran at a big city paper, like anybody else. Uh, I, that made such an impression on me. And I'm, I've always been big on that, that, you know, you have to treat everybody the same. And I think for some of these coaches and star athletes, it gets harder as you get bigger and bigger because more people want a piece out of you. But Shula, man, he's just so down to earth. and I never f- forgot his generosity. I just want to say, so I have this story. It's from the, uh, the big Dolphin 24-20 win over the Colts. I'm sure you don't remember. But your lead was uh, Miami Dolphins coach Don Shula propped himself up against a wall in his coach's room. His strong, chiseled facial features offered a few twists. Noticeably absent were upturned lines around his mouth. Blah, blah, blah. Then I found a story you wrote in 1982 for the Daily Record, Share Gives Support to Cancer Victims. And your lead was, the woman, a cancer victim who had lost her hair, was taking her wig off when her husband called her to come watch something on television. When she entered the living room without the wig, it was the first time her husband had seen her without hair on her head. He immediately burst into laughter. And... I was just going through articles of yours on newspapers.com. You never mail them in. I'm sure kids, like college kids, will send you clips, and they'll send an article, and it'll be, the Penn State Nittany Lions beat Delaware 48-23. And you're like, just don't mail them in. I just feel like you never mail in a lead or an article. Yeah, thank you for that, for even noticing that, because I feel like, you know, that kind of is what drives me, that um, – the writing process is super important to me. I'm also really competitive. I come from a competitive family of coaches and athletes, and they grew up, you know, you competed against yourself. You competed against your brothers in the backyard and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I realize you look around the press box and there's a lot of people covering this same sport. What can I do that stands out from everybody else? Well, I can put a little more effort into it, whether that's reporting and or writing to make it the best that it could be. So, 
it mostly stems from just a, a love and joy of writing that I get from it. I don't want to mail it in because I, it's too important and special to me. So I think I've always had that. And obviously you're reading clips from so long ago, I don't even remember them. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's part of, um, I guess what drives me, but again, it's, it's kind of like getting back to this story that I enjoyed doing it so much that it's nothing that I really need to force. I mean, I'm, I'm hard on myself, but I think that's a good thing. I like, don't beat myself up. Um, but I'm constantly pushing myself not to nail it in to, you know, there, there's always a better way. Like you're saying, you can always be a better writer yourself. There's certainly other better writers out there, but within yourself, you can always be better. You come from an era of competitive writers. I come from an era of competitive writers. You weren't always going to share stuff with other people. You weren't, it was almost like uh, athletes on different teams back in the day where you weren't, you right. could be friendly, but you're not, that doesn't really seem to exist anymore in the same way it once did. But I know you still have it. So is it weird to still be competitive and someone come up to you and ask for stuff or want information? You're just not that guy who wants to do that. Yeah, well, you got to remember too. I mean, early on when I got to Newsday, um, that was only I worked one year in Florida and then got to Newsday. I mean, being a beat writer covering the Yankees and the Mets in New York <laughs> during the tabloid wars of the '80s, I mean, I tell people that's like going to Camp Lejeune as a Marine recruit. You get through that, you feel like you can do anything. But that certainly is a competitive environment. It's sink or swim. It's the phone call you get from your sports editor at eight o'clock in the morning because you didn't have some note that the Daily News had uh, waiting for Steinbrenner to call you back when you know you didn't know if you were on his good list or his naughty list at that particular time. He's going to give the story to somebody else. So you live the daily day-to-day -day competition. And I don't use that word lightly when I talk. It was competition. There's no question about it. So that's part of my training, if you will, introduced to coverage that way. So I do agree that it's changed a lot. I think things are much more managed now in terms of access around the game. And I think people have gotten comfortable with that. Maybe it's because they just haven't, they weren't aware of the other way when it was so competitive. Um, but for instance, just say access in baseball to the manager. You know, we'd sit around the office with the manager and just trade stories. He didn't have to say this was off the record. You understood that. Maybe after the game, you'd go to the hotel bar and sit with Billy Martin or Lou Pinella, and you'd learn things about the team that you certainly wouldn't hear at the ballpark. Um, that doesn't happen now. You know, it's like the manager will be in the dugout at 4 o'clock, and there'll be 25 people in a big scrum there, uh, and he's giving politically correct answers. Essentially, he's a PR person for the club. And that's pretty much it. And it'll do the same thing after the game. So you don't have those opportunities to really get to know people, to ask the sensitive questions or learn the sensitive details that could inform your writing. Didn't necessarily have to become a story or even a note, but it informed your writing. So, you know, that also is part of the competitive environment as well, because that placed a real premium on contacts. And contacts to me is just another name for trust. You know, we're, we're in a business of trust. People have to trust you in order. We want people to tell essentially their life stories to us. And to do that, they have to be comfortable enough that they can trust you. So developing trust without crossing that line into friendship, that's a difficult tightrope to walk, but you have to in the business. Well, so when you were covering the Yankees and you'd be at a bar at the bar, the hotel bar with a Billy Martin, and Billy Martin is drunk and blah, 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 blah. He's I don't know, whatever. He's hitting on the cocktail waitress or he's telling him <laughs> to fuck off, whatever it is. Is there a, a line between you can write about this, you can't write about that, that 
you are aware of as it's going on? Is it a judgment call? Are there some writers who would cross it, others who wouldn't? Yeah, uh, Billy was a different character. I mean, there were times where he wanted you to write something and he would tell you, go ahead and write it. Um, for the most part, though, you kind of understood that whatever he was saying at a bar um, was off the record or at least protected material. It was usually closer to the truth, though, than what you got at the ballpark. You know, once he started drinking, he would just let it fly. Um, and you had to go there. I mean, I, I remember when... <laughs> I guess it was 85 when Yogi Berra was fired after 16 games yeah. and, uh, and Billy was rehired again as the manager. That was my first coverage of Billy Martin. And if you remember Mike McAlary, who turned out to be an outstanding cops and robber columnist in the, in the daily news, was just terrific on the post, but he was a beat writer at the time was so gracious toward me. I remember my first spring training you know, I'm work, walking in there with Murray Chess, Moss Klein, Bill Madden, some real heavyweights who know the Yankees inside and out, have been on the beat for years. And Mike McAlary was the one who would introduce me to a player and would say, you can trust this guy. He's a good guy. Man, that blew me away. Nobody else was going to do that. He did that, you know, unsolicited. And I was like, always was grateful for that. Uh, but anyway, when, when Yogi was fired and Billy was named the manager. Uh, McElary told me, you're about to drink more than you ever have in your life. I said, what are you talking about? He said, listen, you're going to cover the game and then you're going to cover the bar every night. And he wasn't wrong. <laughs> Would it be weird not to drink with Billy Martin if he's drinking? Yeah, but you have to use the Buck Showalter trick. You know, make sure you're near a potted plant. So you keep ordering your drink, but you keep dumping it out when Billy had his, his head turned. But you had to drink, yeah. <laughs> And would or at you, least appear to drink. <laughs> wait, as you would go on in your career, and you have, you've had this great outstanding baseball career, baseball writing career, the guys who were nice to you back in the day, when you were coming up, the guys who made it hard on you, and I'm sure there were some, do you hold it against them? Do you look back and think, wow, you were kind of an ass to me when I was 23 years old and trying to make it as big? Not really. I mean, everybody comes at it their own different way. And as you kind of alluded to, it was such a competitive environment anyway that I didn't necessarily take it as a personal thing. Um, you know, I knew because myself, everybody was under tremendous pressure uh, to keep up with stories. So, no, I, I don't think it was anything that I took personally with, with anybody. Do you think SI can, I don't know, can print, can a print publication survive? Yeah, I think so in a different way. Um, I'm actually a little encouraged about going to a monthly issue with thicker paper. I think it's more of, kind of hesitate to use this term, but more of a luxury product that it feels tactically something of substance rather than before, you know, it was much thinner paper. Obviously there weren't a lot of ads in there. So it was a thinner magazine. It just didn't have a feel to it. And I think part of reading for a lot of people who have the, the reading DNA, there's something tactile about reading, right? As much as we still read on platforms and tablets and things, um, getting a book in your hands or a magazine in your hands is, is I think anyway, still a little different experience, a more immersive experience. So I think if we can play to writing the kind of stories that you don't see anywhere else in a real, um, again, like a luxury type, almost like the New Yorker of sports journalism that you realize you're going to devote some time. This is not something you're just going to pick up, you know, and zip through in five minutes, but you're going to sit down in a corner and read it when you have time. And listen, I've, I tell people all the time, there's still an appetite in this world for good stories that are well told. That will never change. And 
the audience of people who are going to devote time to read a lengthy story, certainly it's smaller. What really bugs me is the TLDR, too long, didn't read. I hate that, man. Invest some time. It'll be worth your while. Still, newspapers and magazines are some of the, I think, the most worthwhile investments in being a public citizen and cheap when you think about it. People are all over the world producing content for you, and it's really not that expensive in terms of the places it can take you. Um, so I, I think that, yes, there's still a place for SI. It has to be a premium product, though. Like chasing the news on a daily basis. I mean, even like on a daily basis now is too slow. The news changes by the minute, right? right? Uh, so that whole week time lag of coming out on a weekly basis, it seemed like forever um, as, as things begin to speed up. So I think if you, you have that, this quiet kind of reflective corner, if you will, but it's got to be really good stories that are well told. I, I definitely think there's still a place for that. I have a final question. I have a blurry memory of Tom Verducci. Yeah. Shea Stadium. We're in, I think, an auxiliary press box. A fan in front of us is being a jerk. Oh, and yeah. I think you – did you – That was a Subway series. Wait, wait, what do you – I've talked to Canella about this in the past. We're like, remember that time Verducci, blah, 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 blah. But I don't actually remember what happened. Do you remember what happened? Uh, I don't remember specifically what happened, but this gets to your point about the postseason being a hassle when you're in the aux box and the aux box is in – if it wasn't the upper deck, it was the deck right below the upper deck at Shea Stadium. So they basically, for people who don't know, they set up these wooden boards, makeshift tables, and we're essentially there with the regular fans who are rooting for the Mets. Yeah. So literally right in front of us. And I don't know what happened. I think what happened maybe was somebody walked in and took a seat in the ox box who was just a fan and started cheering madly for the Mets or something, and I told him to pipe down or get lost or whatever I told him that he took exception to. Uh I don't know what happened yet, but I don't think it came to blows. It may have been on the verge of coming to blows, but I don't think it ever did. Is that what you're thinking about? Yeah, my next book is going to be an oral history of that, of that event. <laughs> is that, are you okay with that? You have to invent a better ending, though. <laughs> <laughs> Verducci punched him and he fell onto the... Uh, I like that. <laughs> well, Tom, listen, seriously, I uh, want to thank you so much for doing this. And number two, I, um, I really, I'm sincere when I say this. I'm looking at you. I really mean this. Like, my time writing baseball sports illustrated people say what do you do at si and i was like it was kind of reducey's caddy like he would get the great <laughs> stuff and they give me the crumbs and i love the crumbs but i learned so much from working there and from watching you again from watching you work at clubhouse watching you craft a story that it's it's the dividends on my career have been immense so i i really appreciate it well you deserve the credit this is all yours jeff because i know how much how hard you work and how much you enjoy the writing process the fact that you're even doing this with me and taking the time to do this i appreciate because um I think you appreciate the writing process as much as I do. And uh, the fact that you kind of picked that up with the story that I wrote about letters from the hub, um, it was for me a labor of love. And, and I think you understand that, that place where I came from in, in writing this. I want to thank today's guest, Tom Verducci, for joining me on Two Writers Sing and Yang. You can read Tom's stuff in the pages of Sports Illustrated and, of course, at SI.com. One can listen to Two Writers Sing and Yang on pretty much any podcast medium. And your views are always appreciated. Really, they are. Music is by the Dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.